1959, there was a short story published about an ordinary mouse that undergoes an experimental surgical technique that dramatically increases its intelligence. And so you can imagine, with the success of this, the researchers are greatly encouraged, and so they decide to try it on a person. Think of it, a cure for low intelligence. I could have used that a long time ago. They found this guy named Charles Gordon, and he was a bakery worker, and his IQ was 68. And that's considered definite feeble-mindedness. That's the technical term. Charlie was perfect for the procedure, and the procedure was perfect for him. His life was one of regular ridicule from his coworkers. His existence was stunted like his intelligence. And probably the worst part was that he knew it. Ignorance was not bliss. He knew he wasn't smart. And he couldn't hope to achieve much in life. He knew that he was the butt of jokes at work. But even so, he wanted to better himself. And he went to night school. And he worked hard, and he wanted to become more than he was, but with an IQ of 68, there's just so much you can do. And he tried, and he tried, and he couldn't make progress. And so he goes under this experimental technique. And guess what? It's a success. Within three months, his IQ is 185. So now he's like Einstein. This is the highest genius level. Now, this story of this mouse and Charlie and his amazing transformation that changed his life was written by Daniel Keyes. And he eventually made it into a novel and then a play and then it was produced on television and then it was an Oscar-winning film and even a musical and you may have heard of it. It's called Flowers for Algernon. Now can you imagine the joy, the just absolute joy that Charlie experienced when his whole life was transformed? Now obviously it's fiction. We don't have surgical techniques that do this. But imagine from going from understanding nothing to understanding everything, from, from struggling to just follow instructions to being smarter than your teachers. One day, you can't grasp algebra. The next day, you're doing quantum physics. One day, it's hard to follow those instructions, and, and the next day, you've just got it all down. And it wasn't just his intellectual life that was affected, his emotional life his ability to relate to others, his capacity to love, it was all transformed. He even fell in love with his high school or his night school teacher, and she falls for him as well. Everything he wanted was coming to be. Now, do you know how the story ends? Even if you haven't read it, can you, can you imagine where this is all going? The effect doesn't last. Charlie himself discovers a flaw in the researcher's work. Algernon, the mouse, suddenly and rapidly declines. And Charlie knows his great intelligence is going to be fleeting. His newfound joy at being capable, respected, smart, is shattered. His relationship with Alice, his night school teacher, is doomed. Everything he gained is lost. Now, when I was in high school, our drama department put on this play. And I was on the stage crew. I, I never acted on stage. I was always behind the scenes. But every night, there was no shortage of tears among the cast, the crew, the audience. It's just a tear-jerking play. The idea that, that a surgical technique can improve intelligence, that's science fiction. But we can all relate to the story of dreams that seem to come true 
and then are suddenly and cruelly shattered. We understand hope that is lost. Now here's something you all know. Circumstances change. Nothing lasts forever. All good things must come to an end. And so building your happiness, your sense of well-being, staking your sense of joy on circumstances is shaky business because circumstances change. Things come and things go. Charlie is a mentally challenged guy working at a bakery as a janitor one day, and then he's a genius the next, and then back to what he was before. Now, maybe you haven't gone from idiot to genius and back again, but we know what it's like to have success and then failure, triumph and then setbacks. And if we base our, our well-being on our circumstances and how things are going, then life is a roller coaster. And yet, we can know joy. Joy that isn't dictated by our day-to-day experience. And here's the key to what we're going to see today. It's the idea that joy, real joy, is a discipline. A spiritual discipline. It's a practice. It's an orientation. And as we'll see, it's even a command. So we're going to look at a passage from Paul that he wrote to the Philippians and what he has to say about all this. And it's uh, Philippians 4, and it's a passage that's pretty familiar. But it's also one of those ones that's kind of easy to just read past and gloss over and say, yeah, 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 that's all true. But if we take him seriously, and if we put his words into practice, then it truly can be life-transforming. So this is Philippians 4, starting at verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, Rejoice. I will say it again, rejoice. Do you think of joy as a discipline? Do you think of rejoicing as something to actively endeavor to do, to something, as something to exert yourself towards? I'm guessing that for a lot of us, the answer is probably not. I'm guessing that for many or most of all of us, joy isn't a choice, it's, it's a response, right? I'm overjoyed when the Mariners sweep the Tigers in four games for the first time in their franchise history. Yes! Did they lose today? They were losing when I... Yeah, yeah, okay, so. I know, two out of three losses to Houston and the... Just... Yeah. We rejoice at weddings and we cry at funerals. It's only natural. We celebrate a new job, a promotion, getting a good grade, but not so much when we get laid off or take a pay cut or fail a test, and yet Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, always. I will say it again, rejoice. It's a command. He doesn't say, you know, when things are good, then you can rejoice. When you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, you can rejoice. He doesn't say, when all is well, rejoice. He says, rejoice always. So the question is, are we supposed to be fake? 
Are we just supposed to put on that plastic smile? A friend of mine told me about a time she was driving down the road, and there's the church, and it's got that sign where they put little witty sayings. And if they're good, they just put a Bible verse on there. But sometimes they put those other stuff on there. And it said, the ABCs of Christianity, always be cheerful. She said she wanted to stop her car, drive over, and tear down the sign. (laughs) Paul is not telling us to be fake or to gloss over the hurt or to pretend. He's not telling us to suck it up, ignore the pain, and praise the Lord. No, he has something else in mind. And certainly, as we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he wasn't just happy all the time. When Jesus saw the hypocrisy of the people claiming to be devout, but who were more interested in their own reputations, he wasn't overjoyed about that. He was disgusted. When he angrily confronted the people who had turned the temple into a marketplace, he wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. No, he turned over tables, he made a whip, and he drove out the animals. On the night he was arrested, while praying in the garden, he said to his disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He wasn't happy about the situation. And yet the book of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the joy set before him, there's a clue there. Paul is not telling us to ignore our circumstances. In fact, in Romans um, 12, 15, he commands us to be sensitive to our circumstances. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. You could say Jesus even took it further when he said, blessed are those who mourn. And the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes reminds us there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. Being a Christian doesn't mean we put on the plastic smile and act like everything is wonderful all the time, because it's not. But even so, in this passage today, Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. So what are we supposed to do with that? Here's the key, I think. He's not actually talking about how we respond to situations and circumstances. The joy and the rejoicing that Paul is talking about isn't tied to whether your team just won the championship. It's not tied to your great success or your pay raise. It's not dependent on all your hopes and dreams coming true or whether you're having the greatest day of your life. Rather, it's about the basic attitude of your heart. It's about your fundamental attitude apart from circumstances, apart from the great thing that has just happened or the heartbreak that has befallen you. It's about the basic attitude of your heart. On on the compass of a life rooted in Christ, joy is the true north where we are oriented. And so the joy we're talking about, the kind of joy that is a discipline, goes far deeper than day-to-day circumstances. And so it got me thinking, how do we get our heads around this? How can we appreciate the, the deep joy that Paul is talking about? And how can we commit to it? How can we discipline ourselves to it? I think to do that, we need to appreciate the deep joy he's talking about. So let me tell you a story. In the middle of the Old Testament, where you get lost among the books of Kings and Chronicles, but before you get to the Psalms, there are these two books tucked in the middle that are fairly short, Ezra and Nehemiah, and they're named for two leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra the priest, Nehemiah the governor. 
they often get overshadowed by the likes of Moses because he parted the Red Sea, and Noah because he built a big boat, and David because he beat up Goliath. But in the story that is told in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see a picture of deep joy. When you read the Old Testament, it doesn't take long to figure out that things were rough for Israel a lot of the time. They were, they were in constant wars. There was no shortage of corruption coming all the way from the top. Most of their kings were evil. There was loads of intrigue and bribery, assassinations, murders, and more. They were plagued by problems at home and problems with the nations around them. Again and again, the people would drift away from worshiping God, drift into idolatry. And again and again, God would send prophets to remind the people to turn back to God because he loved and protected them. But ultimately, God allowed Israel to get overrun by foreign nations. First, the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians came, mightily armed, and carried the people off into exile. The horror and the heartbreak of that, I, I think it's almost unimaginable. Now, we know about what's going on in Syria. We hear in the news about the refugee situation. But I don't think any of us really can grasp what it's like to have your country collapse. The deep distress of losing everything, having everything you know crumble and be overrun. Their great city, Jerusalem, was laid waste. The people lost their homes, their land, their way of life, their freedom politically, their freedom to worship. Everything they had was lost. And then, a lot of time goes by. The Babylonians fall to the Persians. And a Jew named Nehemiah finds favor in the Persian court. And he serves the king with the fabulous name of Artaxerxes. And now it turns out that the Persians were more liberal than the Babylonians. And they were known to let their subject people, like the Israelites, return to their homelands to worship their own gods. And the Persians were even known to pay for this, to finance this on occasions. And so it happens that Nehemiah is granted leave to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that it can be inhabited again. And so he does. And he scouts out the city by night, and he looks at the condition of the walls, and he organizes the people into work crews to rebuild them, and he provides for the defense of the workers. And then he deals with plots against his own life. He manages to outwit those who want him dead. And eventually, after a lot of work, they rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem, and the Israelites are able to return and live there. They'd been in exile for 50 years, under foreign rule, without a home without the ability to worship as they wanted to, and now they get to come home. Can you imagine this? This is deep joy. The deep joy of God putting the world right. The joy of, of vindication, their salvation. People, some of them who only have distant memories of their homes. Many of them who have been born in captivity who never knew the home. People have only heard about it, and they get to come there to Jerusalem. And you know what the first thing they did was? They built a platform like this. They built this big platform, and they all came together, thousands of them. And Ezra, the high priest, he climbs up on this platform so you can see over all the people, and he gets up, and he reads the law of Moses from beginning to end. That'd be like Chris coming up here and reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you all loving it. They were ecstatic. He's going to do that next week. <laughs> the people were riveted. They are overcome with joy. 
Joy that is full of tears, tears that were never more welcome. Their exile was over. They were home. God had triumphed. And Nehemiah says to them, do not mourn or weep. Go and prepare choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This is a day sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now I confess that I too often easily let superficial circumstances dictate my mood and steal my joy. Rejoice always? I'm too busy, too preoccupied, too stressed. There are too many terrible things going on. Just read the news. Just get on social media. There's always another injustice, another outrage, another disaster, another tragedy. People are killed, people are murdered, and no one is held to account. The poor are taken advantage of, and no one is held to account. The powerful exploit whomever they can, and no one is held to account. How can we have joy in the midst of this? Do we even have the right to be joyful? How can we rejoice when there is so much in the world that is wrong? Do you ever wonder about that? Do you ever feel guilty about feeling good while others in the world are suffering when there are millions of Syrian refugees? Thankfully, greater minds than mine have tackled this problem head on. C.S. Lewis, rather smart fellow, he once gave an address to students at Oxford University. It was October 22nd, 1939. Do you know what happened that year? Hitler invaded Poland. And he gave this address called Learning in Wartime. It would have just been six weeks since Hitler had invaded Poland. Great Britain, along with France, Australia, and New Zealand had declared war on Germany three days later. Now, Lewis didn't talk about joy, per se, to, that, to students that evening, but he addressed a very similar question. He said, he, he was talking about how can we justify learning and studying and talking about truth and beauty and art and music when the world is at war, when a great nation like Germany is exterminating whole swaths of its own citizens. Already, by then, Germany was killing off their own sick and disabled. Now, the rest of the outside world didn't know that was all going on, but we knew enough. And so Lewis says, the war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. If men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would never happen. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal. Even those periods which we think most tranquil, like the 19th century, turn out, upon closer inspection, to be full of cries, alarms, difficulties, emergencies. Plausible reasons have never been lacking for putting off all merely cultural activities until some imminent danger has been averted or some crying injustice put right. But humanity long ago chose to neglect those plausible reasons. They wanted knowledge and beauty now and would not wait for the suitable moment that never comes. If our joy is dependent on all being right with the world, we will never know joy this side of eternity. 
If the, if the existence of injustice and evil short-circuits any possibility of joy, then we will never know joy in the Lord. Now, Lewis goes on in this, in this address. He says, All the animal life in us, all schemes of happiness that centered in this world, were always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it, but now the stupidest of us know we see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we have all along been living and must come to terms with it. If we had foolish, unchristian hopes about human culture, they are now shattered. If we thought we were building up heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned. And not a moment too soon. But if we thought that for some souls and at some times the life of learning humbly offered to God was in its own small way one of the appointed approaches to the divine reality and the divine beauty which we hope to enjoy hereafter, we can think so still. And so it is with joy. Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. And we can. Not because we turned a blind eye to the suffering and injustice around us, not because we put on plastic smiles over our own troubles, but only because we have our perspective right. It's been said, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. And so often it's true. The people of Israel didn't know what they had until they were conquered and carried off into exile. But when they returned, they knew the joy that they had found was a deep and profound joy, a joy full of tears, but a strong joy. Their identity was, it was deeply rooted in that land. The land of promise, the land of milk and honey that God had given them. And so to be back home there, in that promised land again, where they belonged, where their ancestors had lived and farmed and worked and worshipped, this was not only an occasion for joy, it was a cause to rejoice always. So even when their crops would fail, and they did, they were still in their homeland. And when the drought came, and it did, or the locusts, and they did. They were in the land that was theirs. They were, like, they were like John Denver in West Virginia. They were where they belonged. And that was reason for joy, deep joy. Now, when Paul is speaking to us, he says rejoice in the Lord. When the people returned to Jerusalem, their deep joy was based on their great deliverance. And we have even more cause to rejoice than they do. We may have not experienced exile, but we have more cause to rejoice because our joy in the Lord goes deeper. It's more profound than just returning home after 50 years. The source of our joy is unshakable because true, because true joy has one source. It's the joy of the Lord. It's salvation. It's a joy rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A joy that doesn't change. This is why Paul can say rejoice always. The circumstances of our deep joy, our well-being, are unchanging. You know, after the people returned to Jerusalem and under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, it wasn't happily ever after. Eventually, guess who came? The Romans the Romans came and occupied them, and eventually they tore down the temple, and eventually Israel was scattered. Things change, but our joy is founded on something unshakable, something unchangeable, something sure 
something secure. Jesus has died and risen again, never to die again. That won't change. So do you know this kind of deep joy? This unshakable joy. So easily we forget when the troubles come. It's almost like we're a people without hope all over again. But joy is found in believing Christ and, and, and receiving that eternal hope. In ways, it's, it's that simple. And so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. What has he done for you? Have you been forgiven? That's actually not a rhetorical question. <laughs> then rejoice. Do you have any hope? Then rejoice. Has he helped you in any way? Then rejoice. Provided in any way. Done what you couldn't have imagined. Yeah. Rejoice always. Make it a point to rejoice. Remember what he has done. What he has done for all of us. His death and resurrection. What he has done for you particularly. Bring these things to mind. Remember them. Dwell on them. I, I was talking with a friend of mine who is struggling with anxiety and depression. And I can go there too. And I told him, about my personal discipline of going to bed at night and counting on my fingers things to be thankful for. I try to get to 20 as I fall asleep. And my friend looked at me like dumbfounded, like what? He couldn't imagine. But it's that simple. It's that simple. Recalling what God has done for you. After the passage that we read today, Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Don't dwell on the garbage of the world or how it's so completely and hopelessly messed up. It is. And yes, be informed. Take action as the Lord leads you. But don't dwell there. Don't let that be your true north. And don't focus on your own failures or your own regrets or what could have been. Don't dwell there. No, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things and you will know joy. The publishers that were interested in Flowers for Algernon wanted the author, Keyes, they wanted him to change the ending. Have Charlie keep his intelligence have Charlie and his teacher get married and, and, and not, don't, don't have their love fall apart. People want the happy ending. Life is dreary enough. Give us the Hollywood ending. But he didn't do it. He refused to give in. For him, the happy ending didn't ring true. We know when something is too good to be true. And we know that all good things will pass, that all good things eventually do come to an end. So how can we rejoice how can we live lives of joy? Only as we rejoice in the Lord. Only as we remember what he's done for us. Only as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Joy is a matter of perspective. So what defines your perspective? When the people of Israel came home after the exile, that sweet return to their homeland defined their perspective. 
They eagerly and joyfully listened to the law, all of the law read out loud. And in that light, their troubles and challenges paled by comparison. And how we have so much more to rejoice in. We have a sure future and hope. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have reconciliation with God and each other. Jesus knows that we're going to have troubles in this world. He says as much. In the Gospel of John, he says, In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's why Paul says to us, Rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. Paul isn't dumb. He knows we'll have troubles. He's had more than his fair share. I haven't been shipwrecked three times yet or beaten with rods to the point of death. But he also knows that we can rejoice in the midst of them. Let me end with one final story. It's about one of the most joyful people I've ever met. And it was just two years ago. I visited a group of missionaries serving in the tiny mountain kingdom of Lesotho, which is this tiny little landlocked country entirely surrounded by South Africa. And I met Kimberly, who was serving there with Mission Aviation Fellowship. They're the folks who fly the planes up into the remote areas and take the missionaries there and the doctors, and then they rescue people and all this kind of good stuff. And Kimberly was on the support staff with Mission Aviation Fellowship. And she is one of those people who just exudes joy. Now, I was only there for a week. I only knew her for that one week. But once she got to know you, she was that kind of person who sent you encouraging emails when you never expected it. Well, a few months ago, she came home on furlough, and she found out that she had stage 4 cancer that had metastasized to five organs, including her brain. She died last week, on Monday. She was 48. What hit me about her experience was that her faith and her joy were unshakable in face of the uncertainty of what she was facing. I'm sure that when she got that diagnosis, she knew things were dire. She also knew that many, many people were fervently praying for her. And yet, even across the miles, she was being treated in Southern California, I could see via Facebook, the glories of Facebook, that her confidence in the Lord, her faith, her joy, it wasn't dependent on her beating cancer. And the day she died, and in the days following, my Facebook feed just exploded with tributes to her and thanksgivings for her life. And really, it was about people in awe of how she'd lived her life to the end. She'd lived a life full of joy and died full of joy. So may joy be your basic attitude. May joy be your true north. Be strong and courageous. Do not lose heart, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Let's pray. Lord God, we have much to thank you for, much to praise you for, and much to rejoice in. Jesus, you are our life and salvation. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that that does not change, even though our circumstances come and go, even though even right now we face things that are hard, that are difficult, that are uncertain, things that bring us down, things that scare us. Lord, so work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we may become 
a people defined by joy. Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen.